Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Hello, and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Charlotte Bond. I'm Lucy Hounsom. And I'm Megan Lee. When the film The Blood on Satan's Claw came out in 1971, reviewer Rod Cooper called it a study in folk horror. Later, in 2003, when director Piers Haggard was talking to Fangoria magazine about his film, he also described it as a folk horror film. In the 1970s, the subgenre of folk horror was particularly popular among filmmakers. Known as the Unholy Trinity are folk horror classics Witchfinder General, The Blood on Satan's Claw and The Wicker Man. The BBC's run of ghost stories for Christmas during the 1970s, as well as adaptations of Jamesian classics like Casting the Runes and Whistle and I'll Come to You, also contributed to the genre. Folk horror's popularity faded a little until the late 2000s, when there was a resurgence of interest from both readers and writers alike. Authors like Adam Neville and Andrew Michael Hurley have both reinvented folk horror by taking it in new directions and revisited it by bringing us reinterpretations of older ideas. Joining us today is Tori Bovolino, author of Not Good for Maidens, a modern twist on Christina Rossetti's fabulously sinister poem Goblin Market, and also editor of The Gathering Dark, an anthology of folk horror. Thank you for joining us, Tori. Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? Hi, um, thank you so much for having me. So yeah, as, as Charlotte was saying, my name is Tori Bovolino. Um, I am the author of Not Good for Maidens, The Devil Makes Three, and I edited... Um, and contributed to The Gathering Dark, an anthology of folk horror. Um, outside of that, you know, I like cats, I like sweaters, and I like things that scare me. Um, so yeah, so this was my first time actually contributing to or editing an anthology. So that was a very interesting experience, but it was great. And it's, it's just been really interesting to see kind of the reach it's had. So if you like cats and sweaters and scary stories, I think you might be my long-lost twin on that. Um. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> now, I'm really conscious that when I did my introduction, there was an awful lot of British cinema and British writers in there. Um, and a lot of interest in folk horror has, in fact, been from British authors and screenwriters. But many of the articles I looked at in preparation for this episode noted that folk horror actually exists in many cultures around the world, but isn't necessarily represented within literature. So your new anthology is set pretty much exclusively in America. What tempted you to create an all-American folk horror anthology? Yeah, so um, I think it's interesting kind of how, obviously, how we grow up and how that cover or colors are, how that colors our um, interpretations of folk horror. So obviously, I grew up in the US. Um, so when I was putting this collection together, I was thinking along the lines of scary stories to tell in the dark, um, the Alan Schwartz, um, you know, collection of short stories. I think in the US, that has such huge cultural value. I mean, there are so many of us that grew up with it. So I didn't actually really grow up with a lot of kind of the British folk horror traditions. Um, I stumbled across a lot of them later in life when I moved to the UK, but realistically, like this idea of folk horror in my mind was this kind of American thing. It's, it's this weird element of, you know, isolation in small towns and the road that goes between the small town leading to the other small town, but it's nowhere near a city. 
Um, and so when putting this together, it wasn't necessarily that I had a, a US centric view of it. It was more that I kind of wanted to focus on those liminal spaces. And those are the stories that grew out of them. Um, and the, the final story in the collection, um, it is an island story. So it's um, set in Dominica as well. That's by Shakira Toussaint. But um, yeah, so putting them together, it was more so that was kind of my impression of, you know, the, the atmosphere of the collection. And so I thought that having maybe even a British interpretation might dive divert too much from that atmosphere that I was building. Um, but at the same time, it was kind of conceived as an anthology that was published in the US. Um, so I think that really colored a lot of the stories themselves, uh, realistically, less so than any direct, oh, I want to make this, you know, more in the British tradition and more in the American tradition. It was more kind of leaning towards the stories that I grew up with. What do you think really differentiates the the UK from the US in terms of folk horror? Because, I mean, as an Aussie uh, living in Italy, I'm probably like way out of the, <laughs> the situation here. But like, what is it that sort of makes it feel more, you know, what you were going for with US kind of style folk versus, you know, something you're saying that like a British one might kind of completely feel different i mean in in what way i think that with the british with british folk horror i feel like there's almost this element of you know class system that's not necessarily carried over um into u.s folk horror i also think that the difference between villages and small towns is so interesting and also really stark when you're looking at something like folk horror um, so I've recently read Pine by, I think it's Francine Toon. Um, and that is UK folk horror. It's set in uh, Northern Scotland. Um, and there's that element of isolation. And it, it reminded me a lot more of American folk horror because I feel like, especially with British villages, it's this, this idea of space. Um, so I, I live in the UK and, you know, even if a village is pretty kind of out of the way, you can be somewhere in two hours, you know, like you're not going to just be in the middle of nowhere for a day. Um, whereas in the U S oh my God. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. It's just like in the UK when people are like, Oh my God, this village is in the middle of nowhere. I'm like, uh, it takes me longer than that to get across Perth in Western Australia. So like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, no, I was thinking the same thing with Australia as well. Um, but you know, you can't just, run 16 miles I mean not that anyone really likes running 16 miles but you can't run 16 miles and be still in the middle of nowhere in the UK and that's that's an exaggeration but you know what I mean so this this idea of space just doesn't translate as well um I think you know liminality which you know the betwixt and between being between spaces being between um classes being just on the outside um I think it's differently interpreted. And then also something that I think is really interesting kind of about the British school system is how rigid the ages are. And I think that kind of fosters the sense of identity that we don't necessarily have in the US. Um, and I know that sounds ridiculous, but so like when you're in the school system in the UK, you pretty much do everything with your year group. And so you kind of have this inherent 
not necessarily small group, but kind of, whereas in the US, it's almost like you're on your own. So I feel like that kind of teenage liminality, um, it's also exacerbated by the idea that there's not this built in system, I guess. I was fascinated by when you just said about the class system. And I'm thinking to myself, you know what? That very much is the case when you look at the the old style stuff. Like, um, I mean, I have to say, personal favorite is the Wicker Man. Um, and, you know, it's the authority going and talking to the cult leader. And you've kind of got all these other people in the background and they're all just there to throw in cryptic comments. But it is about the two people in authority, you know, and you've got the witch hunter as well, you know, the person in authority coming into the little village. But I didn't get that so much in The Gathering Dark. It really was, like you say, this sort of liminal teenage space or just these little families that people have created. I remember the, the very first one in the in the book, um, The t- uh, Stay, where – Oh, now I don't want to give away too much of the spoilers, but it was like a relationship between someone in one village and someone from another village. And it was, yeah, it was very different to what I would expect from the Jamesian tradition. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I love that story so much. That was one of the, um, <laughs> that was one of the, fr- I love all of them, obviously, but I think that was the first one that we actually read the Lauren, um, the editor and I, um, as in the press editor. So I'm the editor of the anthology within the group. But so that was the first one that we read and we were like, oh, oh, we're doing it. We're doing this. Um, It was amazing. When preparing for this episode, I did some research to see if I could find a singular definition of folk horror. And it turns out that there isn't really a straightforward one. So Rather than what is folk horror, I thought a better question might be, what defines folk horror for you? So when you were looking through submissions for your anthology, what elements did you look for in a story that definitely said to you, yes, this is folk horror? Yeah, it is funny because I think it's one of those things that it's different for everyone and it's so culturally considered. Um, So when I was commissioning the stories, essentially, Um, So when we were putting the pitches together, I basically went to the contributors and I asked them to tell me a story from their hometown, tell me a story that they grew up with. Um, So realistically, kind of my definition of folk horror and just a little bit of background on me as well is that so I... um, I operate in academia as well. Uh, We love academia. But so I'm just about done with my PhD, which talks about kind of um, how folklore has been transitioned and used in fantasy novels and the difference between, you know, aesthetic and authenticity. So it was something that I was already considering, um, from quite a critical standpoint, this idea of folklore and how we use it. I would say that folklore specifically, just breaking down, you know, the words, the folk, it it belongs to the people. So I kind of see it in that same, um, kind of space as folklore, So I would say folk horror is more along the lines of urban legends and things like that, but also with an emphasis on the in-between spaces, liminalities, as as I was kind of going into before. Um, And yeah, the emphasis on these kind of traditions that have been passed down that still remain, because we don't necessarily use folklore in the same way that we used to. you know, hundreds of years ago, but we kind of use folk horror in that way instead. Now, um, it's it's the warnings, it's the things that we tell one another that are lurking in the woods. It's the things that we uh, use as preventative measures against, you know, things like teenage sexuality and um, 
I mean, that's the big one really in the US, isn't it? (laughs) But it's preventative measures against going out alone at night and the things that are in the woods. And um, I think I've said that twice. But there are these elements of folk horror that I mean, I can remember growing up with. And I actually I'm actually very curious about this. So is it okay if I tell a spooky story and see if you all have heard it before or if this is a thing everywhere? Well, I want to hear the spooky story now, so you're going to have to tell it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But so just an example of this is we absolutely had um, a story that I heard at pretty much every sleepover when I was a kid, and it was about these two teenagers that were parking, and um, they saw headlights or something like that. And so the guy got out to check what was going on and the girl had to stay in the car. And then she heard this tapping on the window and um, eventually like a police officer comes up and the guy is, has been hanging above the car. So he got out of the car and then somebody snuck up on him and tied him to the tree essentially. And he's just been dead the entire time. Um, So that's just this element of folk horror of like, Oh, don't go parking. Don't go, you know, to weird spots with your significant other as a teenager, or else someone's going to find you and kill you. Is was that was that a transatlantic situation, or was that purely American? Uh, I've had that story before. Yeah, me too. Only it was his yeah. toenails scraping on the top of the car, is what I was told. Yeah. No, I I can't remember which one. Toenails is very uh very explicit. <laughs> It is. And it just, it's that idea of nails down, you know, any kind of shiny surface that I think also gets you, but maybe that's a British thing. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's not. It's, I know what you mean. But if we, if we go with the idea of those kind of things being cautionary tales, I remember there's, I can't quite remember it exactly, but something about a woman being in bed and she hears dripping from the bathroom and, you know, she doesn't quite know what to do and she puts her hand down and, you know, the dog underneath the bed licks her hand to reassure her. And then eventually she gets up, finds the dog, you know, dead in the shower and the dripping is the blood and a sign on the wind on the mirror saying, oh yes, um, humans can lick hands too, or something particularly gross, which doesn't, yeah, it doesn't seem to have a a cautionary tale to it. I, I, I can't really think how you would learn from that or what it's trying to prevent you from doing. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing though, is that sometimes there's just not a meaning to them and sometimes they're just spooky, but that's, it's, it's almost like it's been lost in translation. Like maybe at one point there was a moral there about like, there was a beginning of the story where someone didn't lock their door and that's been lost. I actually do think I've heard a version of that where it was, she was babysitting and didn't lock the door or something like that. Um, it is interesting because they change, you know? So the, that's that's one of the inherent things about folklore and folk horror is that it changes and then in writing it down um, or presenting it as a film we catch it in this static state and then that becomes that becomes what it is um, I was thinking about this with something like scary stories to tell in the dark which does kind of pin down a lot of those classics that we you know told one another as kids as campfire stories Um and it makes them into this static form. And that's just what the story is now. But I, I think it's something beautiful about the fact that when it's being passed by word of mouth, we are able to change it. It is, you know, transformative. I say that as someone who has just, you know, collected a whole book of scary stories that are now static. 
it was what you were saying about um, the folklore morphing into folk horror and Mm -hmm. I've always seen folklore as something about you know when people are fighting to gain control over something that's uncontrollable like their environment um you know we live in a very different uh environment now than we did 300 400 years ago um and we have a lot more or we like to think we do a lot more control over natural forces and our immediate environment and I, but I love this idea that the folklore that you know we used as warnings um, and advice, and it was passed down through the generations, has it's still with us, but in a new form, and that it's become folk horror because, in a way, it's saying that you, the natural world and our environment can still hold terror for us, um, even though we think we've mastered it. Yeah. No, I was thinking of that with. Um... Have you read Stephen Graham Jones, The Only Good Indians? Love that book. Yeah, it's so good and it's so creepy, but it's it's it one is. of those that kind of, it takes this, you know, old Native American impression of folk horror and folklore and it's it's applied it to this modern setting. So it's really brought, you know, whatever message was applied right into the modern world. Um, but also something along those lines would be Angela Carter's um, reimaginings of fairy tales. Whereas we're changing basically everything about the story except for what it means to us. But if we look at, you know, folklore in context, and I know I've gotten off folklore a little bit, but if we look at folklore and apply the actual story to today's, like the context of today's world, it is horrifying. Um, just because the lessons people were being taught, and I, you know, specifically the lessons that women were being taught, you know, in the modern world, if we're looking at those lessons, it is terrifying. Um, there's just, you know, folklore is kind of the patriarchy at work in some ways. Um, but yeah, especially if we're trying to like reap some moral benefits out of it, it's always very interesting to see um, how we can apply that, you know, to our day-to-day lives and how that has changed so much in the last 300 or 400 years, really. When you said earlier about folklore and folk horror being cautionary tales such as not going out at night the thing that struck me is that if you look back at the really old fairy tales they kind of applied to both genders like don't go out because you might get robbed or killed or eaten by wolves or whatever (laughs) whereas I kind of feel that the messages that you get in modern folk horror or more modern folk horror it's more applied to women than it is to men. It's like the idea of the babysitter always being, you know, the, the one in the urban legends um, or going out in a car, you know, and the woman is, um, the one is sitting there while her, her boyfriend is um, hanging from the tree. It's all kind of stuff that replicates what people say to women in societies. Don't go out at night on your own. Don't do this. Don't tr- stray from the path. Whereas I kind of feel that for men, we've civilized society enough that there's not as many issues for them there's still a few but it's it's definitely more a realm where women are the the focus of the cautionary tales than the men would you agree with that yeah i would and i also wonder if that's partially due to just kind of the nature of storytelling and the nature of oral storytelling as we know it uh whereas it used to be kind of this you know to use gendered you know situations but it is kind of this feminine art in that is it's supposed to be mothers telling their children's stories grandmothers telling their children's stories so it's almost like the warnings that they themselves remember um 
the warnings that they held on to. And I think that is really indicative kind of like of the gendered storytelling that we see. Um, and you can kind of see that as well with like something that <laughs> not to get into, you know, critical discussions of folklore, but um, a lot of the older stories about animal bridegrooms, uh, a lot of that's interpreted in that, it's kind of a man learning to, you know, a, a man learning to um, figure out his sexuality in marriage or in a committed relationship. So an example of that would be the Beauty and the Beast. Um, so that's kind of representative of a man figuring out how to be not beastly in a committed relationship. Um, so I don't think, so th- those kinds of messages haven't really necessarily been passed down in the same way the warnings have. Um, So it's almost like the social norms and the social mores, they haven't carried through as well as the, oh, if you do this, you might die. Um, And I think that's fairly indicative of, you know, kind of the way society works and how we teach girls how to behave. Although I have to admit, having read The Gathering Dark, it was a little bit skewed in favour of female protagonists, although I did love so many of the female protagonists and it wasn't always about warning. It was, you know, sometimes about them triumphing. But I did notice there were an awful lot of teenagers in it. And you were saying earlier about teenage years being a sort of a liminal space. And I wonder if it's also the age when we tend to make the most mistakes and need the most warning. So when you're older and an adult, you know what to do. When you're a kid and a toddler, you've got a parent watching out for you. But when you're a teenager, it's the first risk-taking you really get in this modern world where you're allowed out on your own and you can make your own mistakes. So it would seem to me that that would make it perfectly ripe for folk horror. Yeah, it is. It's that first taste of freedom, but it's also that like first element of vulnerability when you really can be targeted. But also, from a purely technical standpoint for The Gathering Dark, um, they are teenagers <laughs> simply because it's YA and, and categorized as such. But... I think just teenagehood is such a scary time and there is no, like people can be telling you what to do, um, but you don't want to do it. And that kind of enforces the idea of rule breaking is the right way to go. Um, which really does, you know, lean into these elements of folk horror and exacerbate them. Maybe not a fake horror point, but I, I just have to push back on Charlotte saying that as an adult, you know what you're doing because uh, clearly <laughs> I'm doing adulting wrong. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. God. And should I rephrase it as you've already made your mistakes and if haven't learned from them, are at least potentially aware enough not to necessarily do it again? Is that a bit of a, bear, yeah, bit of a better assessment? No, no, that's still being far too much. <laughs> <laughs> I was shocked when you said that The Gathering Dark is a YA book because I did not pick up on that vibe at all because there's nothing on the copy I have that suggests it. But when I look it up on Amazon, yes, there it is in Ghost Stories for Young Adults and Paranormal and Urban Fantasy for Young Adults. But it's a very grown-up book when I read it. There was nothing at all that alerted me apart from the fact there were a lot of teenagers, but you get that in horror anyway because it is the time when, like you said, first freedom first vulnerability so it is perfect for you know horror stuff but yeah you tackle some very very dark themes in here um well and i'm gonna be honest aiden one of my contributors um and a wonderful wonderful writer aiden polydorus uh, he kind of puts this better in that 
it's the space of horror to address the things that we might not necessarily be able to talk about in other spaces. Um, and yes, it is YA. It is for teenagers, but you know, teenagers face these things. They face things like death and grief and like terror. Um, and they face things like sexual assault, um, and how to cope with that and how to cope in their own bodies and growing up and teenage, teenagehood is a terrifying time. So we did think in a couple of cases, are we going too far? And I think we had, I had a couple of uh, conversations with Lauren, the editor, um, to say, are we, are we pushing this? Um, and you know, we had them together. It wasn't one of us saying, Oh, you know, I don't know about this. Um, but I think the, uh, the result we came up with is that it's, it's better to have it modeled in kind of a healthy way to deal with rage than it is for people who've been through these experiences to find it through like something kind of like almost trauma porn in how it's represented in, you know, certain horror movies and certain different types of media. So we kind of wanted to go into it not putting restrictions on the content necessarily. There's a lot of gore. There's a lot of difficult topics. There's a lot of drinking. There's, you know, all of these things. Um, and there is a content warning, but yeah, you know, life doesn't really put holds on what people can experience. So even though it's for a teenage audience, we wanted to um, make sure we were handling things delicately, but comfortably, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Aiden's story was one of the ones that made me think of it as being quite dark because, yeah, it does deal with some unpleasant realities. Uh, and yeah, I would, knowing some of the young adults that I do, I would feel comfortable with them reading it because it is done in a very sympathetic way. But it's interesting because thinking about, I was having a look at Stay, which is your very first one, love that one. Uh, and even the third burn, they're almost the teenagers there are dealing with very adult issues and I just did not pick up that they were teenagers because they're sort of going out to work and doing stuff like that. And it's very, it's something that would appeal to all ages. It speaks to all elements of, of that sort of generation, you know, from the young teenagers going out and getting their first Saturday job to the 20 somethings who were still stuck in the same job that they're in from college. I think it's, it's really well done that it doesn't necessarily feel like a YA read. Yeah. Yeah, it it definitely does fall into that. It falls into a liminal space. No, not really. Um, but you know, traditional publishing doesn't really have that new adult category quite yet. And um, I think I would probably position it there. But horror itself, I think a lot of the things that we read as horror don't necessarily fit into a c age category. Like, for example, it's not it's not actually full core, but it is horror. Um, a head full of ghosts by Paul Tremblay. That's a young narrator i think it's a it's a child but we wouldn't consider that to be ya um so i think that you know in a lot of cases horror does deal with younger narrators and it's hard to place kind of in a traditional marketing category um just because some readers might not necessarily be ready for it but they might not be ready for it as 17 year old readers or as 13 year old readers um but so one thing that we kind of were keeping in mind with this as well in terms of content, and I kind of say this with all of my books, is that I'm writing for the kid that I was. So I, as a child, went straight from, you know, Goosebumps to Stephen King. And there wasn't really any transitional horror that I could find that had enough 
not necessarily mature detail, but it, it was, it trusted me enough with it. Um, so I kind of want to write into that gap. And I think that a lot of writers who write for young people or, you know, the transitional ages from, um, you know, 16 to 22, I think a lot of us are trying to fill that gap where it's not necessarily Stephen King or Paul Tremblay or Stephen Graham Jones, but it's, it's not, you know, goosebumps either. It's not middle grade. Tori, I want to talk a bit about your novel, um, Not Good for Maidens, um, which is based on Christina Rossetti's poem, Goblin Market, which is one of my favourite poems. And so I'm very excited to know uh, about your novel. Um, oh, I think okay. it really has so many... Well, obviously, it's very strongly folkloric, but it does have elements of folk horror as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, could you just tell us a little bit about that? Um, you know, how, how did you draw out those particular... In the particular elements of folk horror are in there because I, I think they're, they're definitely present. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just a little bit of background, um, Not Good for Maidens is, yeah, it's a retelling of Christina Rossetti's Goblin Market. It's set in modern day York, um, two storylines, 18 years apart. Um, the first one, and I would say probably the primary one, is about a girl called Lou Um and her experiences finding out that her family has magical powers and uh, is actually a family of witches who uh, protect the city of York from the goblin market, which comes every year. And then the second storyline is her aunt May 18 years before and her interactions with the same market. Um, So yeah, that was, I also loved goblin market and the poem. Um, I studied it. I feel like it's one of the reasons I kind of, chose to do English as a field. Um, there's just so much in there and it's so interesting. And, you know, also being kind of from an academic background, I really leaned into kind of the queer readings of it. Um, that's something that I was really interested in when I was going through how to kind of construct a story from it. Cause there are a lot of interpretations about the relationship between the two sisters and, um, interpretations of queerness and how it's represented within the poem itself. Um, I really wanted to lean into the queerness between, you know, a, you know, a queer um, relationship between two girls. It's sapphic. Um, and then I also wanted to look at the relationship between women because there is that element of sisterhood in the original poem. So it's it's really focusing on this family of women. As for the folk horror aspects, it is a companion to my first book. So my first book kind of takes this idea of like folk magic um, and applies it essentially. Um, so the second book is the same kind of magic system, but actually set in England, set in the UK. So I was able to go a little bit deeper. So it it draws on a lot of old English folk songs. Um, so one of the main elements of it is the song Scarborough Fair, which kind of gives the ingredients in and out of the market. Um, but realistically I wanted to, do folk magic in a way that was scary, but also it felt like it could be real. Um, and I don't know. I like a lot of, you know, old things and I really like York and it just going there, it felt like a place where something could be existing that was a little weird and a little scary. Um, so it just, you know, the setting came to the story and the story came from the setting. You described it as Lou's story being the primary one, but you know what? I thought May's was much better. I really 
really love that storyline. And if I, I had too. to, <laughs> I was going to say, because Lou is brave and resourceful and, you know, stubborn and downright like, no, I'm going to do this. But I, I liked May's more subtle way of doing it. And yes, I suppose she was the weaker character because she succumbs to the market's influence, mm-hmm. but she also challenges it a lot more. I don't know. It's when you said, you know, that Lou was the primary, I hadn't really thought of it in primary and secondary, but I was like, it was definitely May's story that I was more drawn to. I think the only reason I think that Lou is the primary is because she starts and finishes the story. And That's true. She bookends it. Yeah. Yeah. She's like the framing narrative almost. And then May's the deeper meat. I don't know. Is that weird? No, no, I know what you mean. Yeah. Um, I think it also, it was, it's also kind of like Lou is the old, Lou is the younger story and May is the older story as in, the characters themselves are younger and older. And then the challenges that they face are kind of Lou's figuring out her place within her family. And May is trying to figure out who she is. Um, and I think that like Lou was for a younger version of me and May was more so for the me that I was when I was writing the book. You mentioned drawing out the themes of sisterhood in the book, which is also in the original poem. And whilst like Lucy, I love this poem, I kind of find the details of the sisters a bit lacking. It's you've got you sort of read between the lines to get, you know, their strength and their love and you know, what they would do for each other, but there's not a lot to go on. And yet you drew on a huge range of sisterly emotions because you've got the coven, you've got um, a relationship between May and her sister, and then the relationship between aunt and niece. Um, so, I mean, were you drawing on any other tropes from folklore that you've seen that you wanted to work in as well? Or was it personal experience or what was it? What helped you to develop so many versions of sisterhood? Yeah, so I have a sister. <laughs> I have a sister. Wow. No, I have an older sister. Um, and I feel like we have one like we have like the picture of a sisterly relationship in that like we will be fighting to the death at some point, but if anybody insults her or hurts her, like they're dead to me. Um, so it's that kind of thing. But I, when I was writing the book, I don't think it was necessarily as when I started out writing it, it wasn't necessarily as um, familial as it ended up. And then, so just personal experience of when I was writing it. So I basically um, was in the U S for three months um, because my grandma passed away and it was this kind of reminder of the women who raised me and being very close to them. So I'm very close to my mom and my aunt and my sister and like obviously my dad, but we're putting him out of the picture for right now. Um, (laughs) Sorry. But it was just one of those things of like, these were the people who made me who I was and who I am. And I feel like writing a coven like that, it really kind of, it was, it was part of the grief process for me in a way, because it was like this, wonderful goodbye to my grandmother to kind of immortalize um, what she represented to me in a book. Um, But it was also, you know, it was just this way to really lean into this idea of women supporting one another. And um, yeah, I don't know. It was, it was very important to me at the time that I was writing it. And I think looking back on it, it's still important to me now. And I really like that it was able to do that. I think also within folklore that, whole synthesis of um 
mothers and grandmothers telling one another, one another stories and passing things down. I think that was also kind of the framework I was working within, um, to bring the coven to life, to bring the coven to life. And so it was important to me that kind of the main touch points of that were all women and firmly established women with big personalities. As a Yorkshire lass, I quite liked your description of walking into York and it just being a a little bit strange and kind of, I suppose, ethereal. And you do get a sense of sort of grandeur with the huge minster and then the little twisty streets and all this kind of thing. But the thing about Goblin Market is it has a very pastoral setting. They're out and about in the woods and and whatever, and, and that's when the goblins come traipsing past. So with a pastoral setting as the basis, what made you want to put it in an urban setting for your retelling? And, and what in particular about York was it that really drew you to it? So I say this, I have a, I have a framed picture of uh, York over my desk. So that's good. I'm just staring at it as I answer your question. Um, so I didn't actually intend to write this book at all, but I, um, when my first book sold, I took myself on a little trip to York and and it it just kind of happened that I was there. I kind of had this idea of a goblin market story. And seeing the market itself within York, I was like, oh, okay, this actually kind of makes sense. And I think it's that that element of ancient things being laid over the modern that really appealed to me about York. Um, Yorkshire in general as well. But there, it's funny that you mentioned the pastoral scenes because we did cut out a lot of them kind of traipsing around the countryside, making, um, like gathering supplies for folk potions. So I think that the spirit of the pastoral was in the original um, draft of the book, but you know, sometimes, sometimes you have to tighten stuff up for um, actual publication. So a lot of that was sacrificed to the cutting room floor. Um, but I do think that that element of the pastoral, it's it's kind of available just through the folkiness of it all um, and the implication of them traipsing through, hopefully. If not, uh, I really did just like the layers of history running through the city and the idea that this has been standing. You know, I'm, I'm from the U.S. We don't have things that are thousands and thousands of years old. And walking through York, just feeling the press of all of that history, it felt like that was, there was a place um, that could have these scary things and these secrets. I know what you mean about going to York and seeing the market and going, yeah, I could totally imagine it being a goblin market. Particularly, <laughs> I like the way they all dived into little side streets that lead down to the goblin market, which you can absolutely imagine in York. Um, yeah. I mean... I love Not Good for Maidens. I really enjoyed The Gathering Dark. So I kind of have to ask you, what's next? Are you allowed to tell us where folklore and folk horror is going to take you next? I am. So my next book is called My Throat and Open Grave. Um, It is coming out winter 2024. Um, It is actually written. It's with my editor. It's essentially... um, So it's essentially Labyrinth meets Hadestown. Um, so it's basically kind of Orpheus and Eurydice inspired, but not necessarily, but it's, it's folk horror. It's about a girl. Her name's Leah and she lives in a small town in Pennsylvania and in the woods next to her town, there's this entity they call the Lord of the wood and he steals babies. And when he comes for her baby brother, um, it's her responsibility to go get the baby back. So 
it's kind of goblin markety in its inspiration as well, but it's very, very different. I, you know, when I was pitching it, I said to my editor, I know it sounds very maidens adjacent, but we're going in a very different direction. Um, so it's kind of looking at traditions of small town US and yeah. Hades town meets labyrinth. Where, where do we sign yeah. up? <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Two of my favorite things ever. <laughs> I feel like the Hades town is less clear than the labyrinth, but the Hades town comes through in me listening to Hades town 900 times while writing it. Yeah, you've really uh, n- nailed it. <laughs> Lucy and me are both like, oh my God. <laughs> that is a good pitch. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, so we'll see. I mean, I only know it as like the first draft of what it is. So we'll see what it actually ends up as. But, you know, that's that's kind of the pitch. Well, um, yeah, super excited for that. And um, yeah, excited to go and check out um, your novel because I haven't read it yet. And um, I get very excited about anything folklore and, and goblin markets, tramping down the glen, looking for goblin men, that kind of thing. Um, so, <laughs> um, but thank you so much, Tori, for coming along and talking to us because this has just been really exciting um, and completely up my street. So I've had a, I had a great time. Thank you so much for having me. This has been really, really fun. <laughs> Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.